Today's scripture reading is Joel 2, 11 through 17. Please read with me the verses in bold. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the... No? Not with me? Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Cameron. Good morning, Grace Sacramento. Uh, I am one of the elders here at Grace Sacramento. My name is Stephen. Um, if you haven't noticed, uh, our pastors aren't here this morning, but one of the things I love about the fact that we are a Presbyterian church is that we are an elder-led church, which means we can keep going. And so we have, uh, uh, our pastors had other commitments this morning, but you'll notice Mark uh, led us, uh, one, of our past, uh, one of our elders led us in the uh, time of confession and assurance this morning. Uh, this morning I have the, the privilege of uh, opening God's word with you as we look at the book of Joel. And then later, uh, one of our elders, uh, Kelvin, is actually an ordained pastor and chaplain, and he will come up to lead us in the Lord's table together. And so uh, today, this morning, we're going to continue on in our series uh, in the Minor Prophets, uh, a series that we're calling Divine Intervention. Um, <clears throat> for those of you that don't know, the reason they're called the Minor Prophets is simply that they wrote less than some of the other prophets. Uh, so the book of Joel this morning is actually only three chapters. We're going to look at primarily in chapter two, uh, and we're going to look at the, especially the section that we just read together, but we're going to look actually at the bigger picture of chapter two uh, with some references to chapter one and chapter three, but uh, it is a minor prophet. He's a minor prophet only because uh, he wrote less, not because what he has to say is not significant for us today. So this morning, we're, um, <clears throat> we're going to be looking at uh, Joel, the book of Joel, and the main theme of Joel is this idea of the day of the Lord. So I don't know if you've ever been driving down the road, and you see someone on the side of the road, maybe on a street corner, with a big sign that says that the end of the world is coming, Jesus is coming, repent, or, um, you know, are you ready, something like that. If you're like me, maybe you've seen this before, and you're really not sure what to make of them. You know, do they know something that I don't? Are they just trying to get attention? Are they maybe crazy? I think particularly in 21st century America, we don't often give serious thought to the end of the world. Sure, we, we talk a lot about, we talk about global warming, we talk about nuclear war, and these are things that we are rightly concerned about, but the idea of God coming, what his plans are for the future, uh, we don't often give pause to think about. And so with that in mind this morning, as we continue in our series uh, called Divine Intervention, as we look at this idea of the day of the Lord in the book of Joel, 
We must recognize that we live today with a certain amount of cultural distance with uh, Joel's audience that he's writing to in the kingdom of Judah and particularly the city of Jerusalem. We also must recognize that we today have certain uh, anti-supernatural biases as we read the book of Joel that we think, uh, is that, will that really happen? What is, what is he really, is that just a metaphor? Like what's going on here? Uh, but as we, as we look at the book of Joel, we, we notice that as he focuses on this idea of the day of the Lord, that he paints vivid pictures for us using apocalyptic imagery, things that, that signify the end of the world. And if we fail, as we come to the text today, to recognize our own default biases, then we might be tempted to write the prophet Joel off as just maybe an unhinged character, irrelevant, uh, that he doesn't have anything relevant to say to us as modern people. And so we'd see him as just another guy on the side of the road with a cardboard sign. However, to do that is at best to practice uh, cultural and even chronological snobbery, as C.S. Lewis would, pu would put it. Assuming that we today, just simply because of where we live and when we live, that we just know better than everyone else. And at worst, we're actually failing to receive the message of the divine author of the Bible, what God has to say to us today. And there is actually a reason why Joel wrote what he wrote for us today. And so the main idea <clears throat> that I want us to focus on today and come away with is that because Joel, in, in, particularly in chapter 2, provides contrasting scenes of both devastation and deliverance on the day of the Lord, that God actually is spurring us on toward a life of dependence on him through Christ. And so we're going to look at three pictures this morning. The first is a picture of devastation. The second is a picture of deliverance. And the third is a picture of dependence. So picture number one, the day of the Lord is a day of devastation. The prophet Joel ministered in the kingdom of Judah uh, after the, the kingdom of Israel divided between north and south after uh, King Solomon in 931 B.C., and Joel is uh, specifically in the southern kingdom of Judah where, the, the, where David's sons continued to reign as kings. And, and he ministered to the people of Jerusalem, to God's people. The date of the book of Joel is actually unknown. Uh, people argue about, did this happen earlier in, in Judah's history? Did this happen later? Uh, I actually see some hints here of this happening before God's people went into exile to Babylon because of some of the allusions to invasion. But the reality is, uh, no one, we don't know. God knows, and, uh, and scholars have debated and really come down to the reality that not knowing exactly when this book was written doesn't affect our ability to understand Joel's message. So as, we, as you open the book in Joel 1, we see that already there is crisis, that Joel speaks in the past tense about a locust plague and a drought that has come upon God's people, that there has been a time of judgment that swarms of locusts and grasshoppers. If you've ever, uh, if you've ever seen this or, or seen videos of it, um, we actually were, we were reading a book, uh, of the, the Little House series, and there was a, a moment where there were a locust, I th locusts or grasshoppers that ate up all the crops, but these swarms would come through and just eat everything that's green, leaving nothing behind. And then drought, so there's nothing that can grow after that. And so this is a serious crisis that God's people have, have been going through. And so Joel talks about that as, as a judgment, a discipline from the Lord. Uh, and he talks about this in the past tense. But as we move into Joel chapter 2 this morning, in verses 1 through 11, we see that there is another crisis. And he changes to the, the present tense and the future tense as he shares this dark picture of the day of the Lord. He seems to kind of rehash some of the same imagery of locusts. If you, were to re if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, um, 
I'm going to be moving through it pretty quickly, but as you look at, at uh, verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2, that there's this description of darkness, which could be the locust swarms blocking out the sun because there are so many insects that you couldn't actually, the light couldn't shine through. It was like a cloud moving across the land. Uh, the, Joel talks about the vegetation being left in desolation. He talks about the overwhelming noise in verse 5, which could be the wing beats of these locusts. He talks about them climbing up walls and entering into windows. It's really creepy. But he seems to talk about more than just bugs. He actually seems to be pointing to the fact that this could be a metaphor for an invading human army because of the, the attributes that he ascribes to this, this invasion, that they are like an army in verse 4, that he compares them to war horses. The sound is actually also like that of rumbling chariots. There's fire, which is a very common tactic that as people would invade, they would burn, they would burn the land, they would burn up the crops so that uh, the people that they were invading had no, no supplies left. Uh, they're pictured in verse 5 as an army drawn up for battle, as warriors and soldiers. In verse 8, Joel describes them as marching toward God's people. And yet there seems to be something even more beyond just the idea of a human invading army, that there's cosmic imagery of this darkness and gloom, a consuming fire that leaves desolation behind and burns indiscriminately in verse 3. And even as we get into verse 10, that there's an earthquake, that the heavens shake, and that the moon is darkened and the sun is darkened, which is not something that a human army can control. But what is clear is in verse 11 that this future calamity that Joel is, is predicting and prophesying is the Lord. This is his army, and he is bringing judgment on his people, that this is a judgment for sin. So what we read this morning in verse 12 picks up right after this, right? It said, uh, if this is the day of the Lord, it is a great and awesome day. Who can endure? And that the immediate response is God calls his people to repent, to, to turn to him. And so clearly this is a future judgment for Judah. And if you continue on into Joel 3, there's also judgment for all nations because it is for sin that God's people and all people have turned away from him and have gone their own way. What's interesting about the book of Joel is that he doesn't specify a specific sin. Some of the other prophets, they specifically point to idolatry. They point to abuses of power where the poor have been oppressed. Um, they point to uh, certain practices that uh, God's people were not to practice. And yet Joel doesn't mention any of those things. But what is clear is that somehow God's people have turned away from him and have gone their own way. And God is bringing discipline and curses like those established under Moses in Deuteronomy 28, which promises that if, if God's people are not faithful to the covenant, that they will experience discipline and curses in the city and in the field. It will affect their crops. It will, it will mean drought for them, like we read about or we talked about in Joel 1. It will mean defeat by enemies. It will mean darkness coming over the land, being robbed of their goods. It will mean that they will become a byword of the nations, an object of shame and reproach. Now for us today, as we, as we hear about this, we can become a little bit uncomfortable in our culture talking about things like judgment, facing the consequences of our sin. And yet we also recognize, as a culture, the need for justice. The reality is that we, you cannot read a newspaper, or you know, maybe not paper, on your phone. You cannot look at what's going on in the world and not recognize that we live in a broken and fallen world, that there is sin. And we look at that and we long for things to be made right. We long for justice. 
And what God's word has to say to us is that we live with sin and rebellion in our own hearts. And so that actually true justice, if we actually got the justice that we ask for before a holy God is actually a frightening and terrible thing as pictured by the prophet Joel. And so we live kind of in this conf- with this conflict, uh, conflict inside of ourselves, demanding what, that others be held accountable while excusing our own faults. But this is a picture that Joel gives us of the day of the Lord. And we need to recognize, we should recognize as Christians, <clears throat> that we look forward to the fact that there will be a final day of the Lord when all wrongs will be made right, when justice will prevail. And it should be noted that between that time and now, and back to the time of Joel, that there have been many, what I like to call mini days of the Lord. That the day of the Lord is not just one day, but it is a pattern that is seen throughout scripture whenever God enters into history and judgment. And this is part of the progressive fulfillment of prophecy. As we're going through the the series in the minor prophets, you'll find that even uh, even as Pastor Daniel talked about last week in Hosea, Hosea was talking about bringing, uh, or God, God bringing his son out of Egypt, talking about Israel and the Exodus. And yet Matthew looks at that and sees that also points to Jesus, that there's not, it's a pattern. It's not just one fulfillment, but it progressively being fulfilled. And so this, this idea, this dark picture of the day of the Lord includes the locust plague and the drought that we see in Joel 1. But it could also include, if this is coming before that time, the Assyrian attack on Jerusalem in 701 BC or the fall of Jerusalem and they're going into exile to Babylon in 587 BC. It could be later after being restored to the land when they experience oppression under the Greeks and Romans or again after the time of Jesus, the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. All of these are types or pictures of the ultimate day of the Lord that is still to come. And as New Testament believers, we anticipate this day of the Lord when Christ will return as pictured in Revelation 19. And so just as Joel mentioned, the end of the world will be more than just locust plagues and human warfare. The coming of the Lord will actually throw the universe into chaos as he enters in in judgment, just like that pictured in Joel's prophecy. And so those peoples, those nations that continue and persist to live in rebellion against God will come to a bad end. That those who oppose God and choose to live life apart from him can only look forward to this picture of devastation uh, becoming real in their lives. And so because Joel gives us this terrifying picture of devastation, God spurs us on to consider our own ways and to live in dependence upon him. That's picture number one. Picture number two the day of the Lord is also a day of deliverance. If you look at Joel 2, 18 through 32, it gives a different, much more positive picture of the day of the Lord. We see that is actually a time of material blessings. That uh, is a time where they will, they will have crops, they will have security from their enemies, that uh, there will be restoration of na- in nature, that order will be restored, that they, it talks about the early and late rains, that rains will come in season. I think as Californians, we can identify with this a little bit. We like our rain coming when it's supposed to in the right amounts, and it's God saying he will provide that so they will have more than enough food. And this word in, uh, in Joel 2.25 for restoration actually has the same Hebrew root as the word shalom, and it's much more than just peace. It's the idea of wholeness, of completeness, of God making, restoring the world to the way that it was always meant to be. And the effects are that of satisfaction and fullness in verses 19 and 26. But more than just material blessings for God's people, it is also a time of spiritual blessings. Three times it talks about the shame that God's people experience and how he will remove that shame. 
how they will experience God's presence in their midst. The whole idea of being in a covenant relationship with God is to be, live in intimate relationship and to experience God's presence as he dwells in their midst. And so they, in this uh, day of the Lord, God's people experience that he lives with them. In fact, in verse 28 through 29, he talks about the pour, God pouring out his spirit upon God's people, not only living with us, but living inside every believer. And there is an equality among God's people, as this is prophesied to be true for old people, old people, young people, men, women, slave, free, that all of us as, as Christians have direct act- access to God through his Holy Spirit who lives in us. And like the curses that I talked about from Deuteronomy 28, the Mosaic Covenant also pointed to covenant blessings for those who turn to the Lord and depend upon him, that they would be blessed in the city and in the field, that their crops would be, would be blessed, that their enemies would be defeated, they would have full barns, they would not have to worry or live in anxiety, and they would be well spoken of by the nations. <clears throat> and so just as the judgment side of the day of the Lord is rooted in God's character, we also see in what we read this morning that the blessings are also rooted in who God is. Verse 13 talks about how God is gracious, that he longs to do good for us. He longs to, to give mercy. He is merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting in giving disaster, eager to leave a blessing in verse 14. For, uh, Joel 2.18 also says that he is jealous for his people, that he has pity upon them. And this is something that we sometimes we don't always understand when we think of jealousy. We think, why would, how can God be jealous? Isn't jealousy a bad thing? Isn't jealousy a sin that the Bible talks about? When the Bible talks about God being jealous or a jealous God, it's not saying that he envies us, he wishes that he were us. Pretty sure that's, no, no one, he would not want to be us, <laughs> right, with all, with all our mistakes and failures. And yet, the idea of jealousy as zeal, that God is zealous for his people. He is zealous to see that they are protected and cared for. He does not like to see them uh, mistreated. He does not like to see that in them suffer from injustice, and he wants to restore them. And so the idea of God being a jealous God really is tied to the pity that God has when he sees the condition that we have in this broken world that he wants to come and to redeem us and to bring us to himself. And I think that this, this character of God is so evident in Joel 2.18, where as soon as the people repent, as soon as they turn back to God, we see immediately, then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. Then he answered his people and said to them, and then all of a sudden, there's all these blessings that, that he, he gives them, that he is so quick to pivot, to turn back to blessing as soon as they turn to him. And the people's response is no longer that of fear, which we saw in the first picture, but actually that of gladness and joy, that there's satisfaction that leads to the praise of God in Joel 2.26. And so for us today, again, we recognize there will be a final day of the Lord when Christ will return, and he will wipe away every tear from every eye and live and uh, fully dwell among his people. But again, there's that pattern of many, many days of the Lord where God has brought some amount of restoration to his people. So if you think about how the Jews were taken into exile to Babylon, there was a return from Babylon when God brought his people back under Cyrus, king of Persia. There was the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. There's also Jesus coming in his first coming to be with his people. 
And in Acts 2, the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost is specifically named to be one of these days of the Lord. Peter specifically quotes from Joel 2, 28 through 32 as being partially fulfilled when Christ sent the Holy Spirit on the early church. And that the experience was that all believers, again, old, young, male, female, slave or free, all now had direct access to God because God's spirit dwelt in his people. Yet what's interesting is that we can see that even in Acts 2, as Peter points to, to Joel's prophecy, we see that it's not quite fully fulfilled. Joel 2, 30 through 31 talks about, again, great cosmic signs of the, the sun turning dark, the moon turning to blood. None of that happens at Pentecost in Acts 2. And so there's clearly something greater that is still uh, being, that we await to be fulfilled. It points to the fact that there is an ultimate day of the Lord when Christ will return to dwell among his people. And that is actually pictured in Joel 3, where God and his people live forever in the new Jerusalem. That's pictured in Revelation 21 as well. And so those who trust in the mercy, uh, compassion and mercy of God look forward to this day of deliverance, this future hope that we have. Because Joel gives us this second beautiful picture of deliverance, God spurs us again to consider our ways and to live in dependence upon him. All right, picture number three. The day of the Lord also requires us. It's, it's, a, it's a response of dependence. Joel has clearly given us these first two pictures, two sides of the same day of the Lord, and yet they're really two sides of the same coin. For one group, it's dire consequences and devastation for those who persist in their rebellion against God. It also means divine comfort and deliverance for those who trust in the Lord and call upon him to rescue. So why are there these two very different experiences when God draws near to humanity? If you think about it, if we look back even to the Exodus, God's visitation of Egypt, people experienced it very differently if you were an Egyptian or if you were an Israelite. You had a very different experience of those plagues. Joel's imagery even of the darkness and the clouds connects back to God leading his people out of Israel as a pillar of cloud and as he protected the people as they crossed the Red Sea. On one side, the Egyptians were terrified of the cloud and stayed back. And on the other side, God's people experienced protection as they safely crossed the Red Sea. And Joel is pointing back to this, that, that this same event on the one hand, it can be seen as a terror, and the other hand, is a, brings comfort. Because the reality is for us today that all of us have sin in our hearts, that we choose to trust and to rely upon ourselves. When we live for ourselves, our rebellion places us under the judgment of God who made us for himself. And yet the day of the Lord goes very differently for those who call on the name of the Lord, as Joel mentions in Joel chapter 2, verse 32, that all who came call on the name of the Lord will be saved. I think a really simple example that we maybe can all identify with is if you're at work and your boss comes into your cubicle, you have a very different experience with that depending on your relationship with the boss and what you're doing when he or she gets there, right? Uh, and so I think it's, it's similar with the day of the Lord. The main difference that we see, in an, specifically in the part that we read in Joel 2, 12 through 17, the main difference is faith in and relationship with the Lord. And that's why Joel, in the middle of these two pictures, has a call to repentance and calls God, God's people to turn away from their sin, to turn away from living life for, them, for, for themselves 
and to turn back to God. He twice calls them to return to the Lord with all their heart. And in verse 13, he urges them to rend their hearts, not their garments. And what this means is not, uh, you know, there is a cultural custom of, of tearing one's clothes in, to show as a sign of mourning, of seriousness uh, before the Lord. And what Joel is saying is that it's not that that's not appropriate, but if all we are doing is external ritual to try and please God, what God is actually after is our hearts. And the focus is on rending our hearts, the, that in, internal change, that devotion to the Lord, not just trying to appease him to get him off our backs with these external rituals. For us today, that might be, some, some of us might be coming in today feeling like, well, if, as long as I read the Bible a little bit, maybe spend some time in prayer, maybe I, I gave some money, or I attend church regularly, that's all that really matters. But what God is actually interested in using these things, even these external rituals, to shape our hearts, even uh, as, as uh, Mark led us this morning in our time of confession, that that is us recognizing that we come in here with sin in our hearts, we come in... Uh, in brokenness before the Lord, in need of mercies, new mercies every day. And so again, this, this mercy and this grace are found rooted in the character of God. And so this picture in Joel chapter 2, uh, verse 17, is the, the priests as intermediaries standing between God and the people at the altar, crying out to God to rescue them, to forgive them, to give mercy, because they know that this is a judgment that they deserve. And ultimately, their struggle is not just, it's not just for the people of Joel's time. It's not just for the Jews. It's our struggle today. It's, the, it's everyone's struggle. As John Calvin says, every one of us is inclined to hypocrisy and has need of having his attention drawn to the, to the sincerity of the heart. Let anyone search himself, and he will find that he labors under this evil, that he would rather rend his garment than his heart. To actually humble ourselves before the Lord, to admit that, Maybe the problem isn't just that I didn't do all the right things, but the problem is something that I can't change and that I so desperately need him to change, which is my heart. We are all called to look at our own hearts and to examine them this morning. And when we do, we may find that, like Joel 2.11, when we, when we are confronted with the day of the Lord, we ask, who can endure it? Certainly me on my, on my own, looking at my own life, I can't stand before the Lord for anything that I've done. However, <clears throat> the good news is that in the two comings of Christ, we see the ultimate fulfillment of the day of the Lord, which all of these many days of the Lord point to. The accounts of Jesus' death in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record that at the hour of Jesus' death, it was a time of great darkness, that the sun failed to shine. In fact, Matthew even records that there was an earthquake at his time of death that caused the rocks to split open. These cosmic signs, which we read about, which I talked about from Joel chapter 2, actually point to the fact that Jesus' death is connected to the day of the Lord. That on that day, the day of the Lord came upon Jesus. That he took the punishment for our sin, dying on our behalf, and he took the consequences that we, re we deserve. That he is our great high priest, just like those in Joel 2.17 who stood between God and the people asking for his mercy, Jesus stands between us and God's judgment for our sin. And in Christ, we find the justice that we long for and the mercy that we so desperately need. 
On the other side of the cross, we find hope in Christ's resurrection the new, and the new life that he gives to those who place their faith in him, including the spiritual blessings that come with the Holy Spirit who now lives in all Christ's followers, just as Joel prophesied. In other words, Jesus took the curses tied up with the day of the Lord upon himself so that we might experience the blessings that come from a restored and intimate relationship with God. Because of this, for those who continually reject Christ, his coming will be a day where their con the consequences of their sin will catch up with them. Yet for those who trust in Christ, who follow him, we can look forward to his second coming because we know that that is a time when we will experience the un uninterrupted joy of his presence with us. So because Christ bore the judgment of the day of the Lord for our sins, we can experience abundant, the abundant blessings of God's nearness and presence. For us today, we have a clearer picture of how God actually delivers us from judgment through the work of Christ. And that spurs us on to live in dependence upon him. As we look forward to the final fulfillment of Joel's prophecy in Christ's second coming, we must ask ourselves whether this morning we are in Christ or not. Are we living for ourselves apart from Christ? If so, Joel's terrifying words are a warning, just like the trumpet blasts in Joel 2 are to warn the people of the coming invading army. This is a trumpet blast in our own lives, an alarm calling us to humble ourselves and to turn to Christ. Are you in Christ, trusting in his work on the cross? If so, Joel's words give us hope that even in the hardships of this world, they will one day pass away, and we can look forward to a future where Jesus will make all things right. The reformer Martin Luther called the Christian life one of repentance. Joel's warning and encouragement to us this morning is that <clears throat> we need to continually turn to the Lord with our whole heart and allow God to transform us day by day through the inner work of his Holy Spirit. The Spirit convicts us of sin. He reminds us and helps us to see that we are bent away from God, that we, by default, want to trust in ourselves to be our own gods, and yet the Holy Spirit brings us back with a continual call to renewal and faithfulness. And lastly, this is also a call to, grateful, to gratitude for God's provision and care as we enjoy what has been given us in Christ and await its fullness when he returns. So again, the main idea that we, that we need to take away from the book of Joel as we, as we consider the day of the Lord this morning is that because Joel provides these contrasting scenes of desolation, devastation, and deliverance on the day of the Lord, God is spurring us on toward a life of dependence on him through Christ. Now, all that I've said, this is not to say that every person that you see on the side of the street with a sign proclaiming the end of the world is right. Jesus actually made it very clear to his disciples that we don't know when that day is coming, that those details are purposefully hidden from us. Yet Joel encourages us to remember that God is not far off, and he is not unconcerned about how man humankind lives in this world. He will return one day to right every wrong and to bring renewal to his creation, but it will not be experienced the same by everybody. That comes down to how we respond to God's call to return to him and to live in dependence upon him. Just as there was still time in the time of Joel to avert disaster based on his warnings, and just how Peter, in his, in his sermon in Acts 2, calls the people to repentance, that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So that free offer in Christ still stands today. 
that all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. So I urge you to call and continue to call on him today. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word from us. It is a hard word, and yet also it is the word of hope. We thank you for sending Jesus, that he came to rescue us from, from this picture of the day of the Lord, that, that he took that upon himself, uh, that he took the covenant curses upon himself on the cross, dying the death that we should have died. Thank you for the, the blessings that you give us in Christ that we can experience new, uh, an abundant relationship with you, God. And thank you for your persistence, your grace, your mercy, the warnings that you give us, the fact that you discipline us to humble us, to bring us back to yourself, because ultimately you desire, you are eager for us to turn to you. Please continue to pursue us with your love and mercy for all of us in this room, that as our hearts can be our wayward hearts, that you would continually bring us back to yourself. Help us to turn and depend and to trust upon you and to look forward to your coming as a day of, with anticipation, excite, with excitement that you are coming and that we can be with you forever. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.